Okay, with that, let's pray, and we'll look at our passage for today. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for this great little letter of Philippians. Lord, we ask that as we continue our study here, uh, that your spirit would guide us, that you would give us understanding. May your word uh, make sense to us. We pray that these, uh, these words from many, many years ago, um, that we would have clarity and understanding for how they apply to our life. We pray, Father, especially for us as a church family, that you would uh, unite us in mission, unite us in love, unite us uh, together uh, for the sake of the gospel. Um, may we recognize what we are a part of in Christ and that there are certain expectations that you have on your followers. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to think biblically in how we go about life as a church. Um, Father, we just pray that your hand would be upon us in all things. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 <clears throat> Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Last week we covered this section. Verse 21, one of the, the probably the most well-known verse in all of Philippians, where Paul writes from uh, being under arrest, uh, under house arrest, not knowing the outcome of his fate, whether he would live or die, whether um, he would get out of there, whether he would face his execution. Um, he had been under arrest at the time of this writing, sometime between two years and four years. We know, We know that he spent a total of four years under arrest. And as he writes this church in Philippi, this church who he loved immensely, who they'd worked together closely, um, he was writing this letter of encouragement, this letter of gratitude. And and he writes to them like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen here. He's like, I don't know whether I'm going to get out or I'm going to be free, but but regardless of what happens, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so if I'm, if I'm to go on living, I'm going to do it for Christ. And if I die, that's gain because this world is so sinful and I'm so ready to, to go on to the next life, to be in the Lord's presence, to be free of uh, all of the hurt and heartache that we suffer in this life. And he sort of ends with, I, you know, I have a feeling that I'm, I'm going to get out. 
And when I get out, I'm going to live my life for him. And I'm going to use the time to encourage you and to equip you in your relationship uh, with Christ. Um, And so he enters into this section. And as we enter into this section, there's something that for us as Americans, I think is going to be hard for us to see. See, we live in a very individualistic sort of society that bleeds into to all things. Um, I was guilty of many years when I didn't really care about God, but, but I said I had a relationship with God, and I, but it was between me and him and none of your all's business kind of thing. And, and, and we, we tend to think that way, that, that I can do whatever I want to do. God has no real input. I'm the one who tells God the, the sort of the parameters of the relationship and it's going to fall within sort of the, the way I want to do business. And, and um, when we come to the New Testament, it's not the picture that's, that's presented. The, the picture that's presented is that those who come to Christ, those who um, receive the gift that has been offered to all people, namely the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, he was buried for three days, he rose again. This is all according to Scripture. He gave his life so that you might live. And then if you receive this gift, it's not about you just kind of going along your own merry way, doing whatever you want to do. It's, it's about this community that he has created called the church. The church is not a building. It's not a location. It's, 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 it's the group of believers, um, both locally and globally, basically going back to Acts chapter 2, that, that there's the body of Christ, and you're a part of this body, and and he has sort of instituted certain things. He's given the mission statement for how the church is to operate, the, the aim, the vision, the, the great commission, which we refer to, to go and make disciples of all nations. It's not for us to dictate. It's not for us to come up with a plan. I love Siri. <laughs> it's happened to all of us. Um, And so as individuals, it's hard for us to come to this passage to understand that you're, if you're in Christ, and, and this passage is really talking to Christians, those who have given their lives to Christ, that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And God has gifted you and equipped you and, and has a purpose for you to use within this greater cause. And so we need to think this way, that you're a part of something, namely the body of Christ, and that you have things that the body of Christ needs. I don't want to say not because you're special, or that's what I want to say, it's not because you're special, but because he has given you a gift and has created you, and he has made you for a reason, and his word tells us that there's a place for you within the body of Christ and that the body of Christ needs you. And so we begin with this first verse. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to stop there. That first word, only, is significant. Um, As I go through the translations, I see that it's translated uh, only, alone, uh, whatever happens above all. It's sort of, he, he shifts in his writing. And as he writes this paragraph, he wants the readers to understand that what I'm about to say is really important. Above everything else, there's one thing that I want you all to get. And where he's striving for is, is unity 
of the body of Christ, not just unity for the sake of unity, but, but unity for the purpose that God has established for us to be unified. He's, it's going to, uh, as a spoiler alert, he's, he's getting towards the gospel of Christ, that, that this is the aim of the church, and, and the church is the body of Christ, believers. This is just a building where the church meets, and so believers are to be united for a certain purpose, and he says, only. This is of utmost importance. This is critical in what I'm writing to you, church in Philippi. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, this, this word, conduct yourselves, you, you, you might have a translation that says something along the lines of uh, behave as good citizens, which is a really good translation. This is a word that we get the word politics from. It carries very much um, the idea of citizenship. In, in Philippians 3.20, he would use the noun form of this word to say that our citizenship is of heaven. And so it carries a lot of weight to these believers who are in Philippi. Remember to back things up, the cultural setting. Philippi was a city or a town that was actually a Roman colony. These are Roman citizens who take their Roman citizenship very seriously. Um, th- there were no Jews there. Uh, we know that when Paul went through, I believe off the top of my head, I think it was Acts 16, I think that as Paul went through there, there was no synagogue. There were no male Jews that he could find, so he goes down to the river and he finds a handful of women praying at the river because that would be the next step for a Jewish person to do. It was to be outside of the town. And so he finds these women. And so we know that this church that was founded here in Philippi that Paul planted, these are, these are like, these are card-carrying Roman citizens and that was of value during that era. And so when Paul writes and he uses this word that carries the implication, be good citizens, their mind is going to their Roman citizenship. If I was to begin talking about citizenship here, my understanding is that the, the, the bulk of us are, you know, good old red, white, and blue American citizens. And we start talking about citizenship. It's Memorial Day weekend. Like, your mind is going to go towards American citizenship. And all of the benefits, which there are many for being American citizen, all you need to do is have your passport and start trying to travel the world. And you'll realize how many doors are open to you internationally just because you carry that little blue book with the little eagle and stuff on it. Like, you can, go, you can pretty much go wherever you want. It's, it's not the case for every passport. Americans have a, a whole lot of benefits, and this isn't about America. W- what I'm getting at is that when we, if we were to read this in the original context, and he says, only uh, conduct yourselves as good citizens, your patriot, you get out, sir. oh, I'm going to unroll my American flag, I'm going to start waving it, I'm going to, you know, God bless the USA, we're going to get real patriotic. That's the direction they're going, except they had Roman flags and Roman stuff, and they were thinking along Roman lines, but, but Paul's going to do the old flipperoo on them, the old bait and switch. Conduct yourselves as good citizens in a manner worthy 
of the gospel of Christ Jesus. This is, this is, a, whole, this is a whole different angle. Conduct yourselves as good citizens. Now, I think of my, my uh, civic duties. I, I think along the lines of everything that means to be American and like how do we uh, become good citizens in our country by, by volunteering, serving, voting. Um, but what he does is he ties it with the gospel. And I think he's beginning to make his move to help them to think differently. In Romans 3.20, if you just turn a couple pages over, look what it says here, for our citizenship is in heaven. This is that same word. So the reality is, is if you're a Christian, if you've decided to follow Christ, if you've given your life to him, you're what some people that have the privilege of being dual citizens. That you kind of have two passports. Like your, your primary passport, that you're a citizen of heaven, and you might have an earthly passport of a country that you live in that there's certain benefits. Paul, who's writing this, was a Roman citizen, and we see throughout his life, he took, he took advantage, and he used his citizenship for the gospel in the very town of Philippi. He was beaten, and all of a sudden, when they were trying to release him, he's like, I didn't know you guys were allowed to do that to a Roman citizen. And they're like, oh. <laughs> you're a Roman citizen? He's like, yeah, I am. So can you have all the officials come talk to me? I don't want to just be let out of jail. I, I, I I'd like to talk to them face to face and let them know what they just did. But he turns this citizenship and he's beginning to show if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. And conduct your citizenship in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And and that's something to kind of ponder. I've been chewing on this like all week. Like what what does it mean to live and to function and to carry out my life in a way that's worthy of the God. Like, worthy of the gospel. Like, not to ask the stupid question, but what is it? I mean, I know there's no, stu- like, there's no stupid questions, right? But what's the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul defines the gospel that it is that according to the scriptures, Jesus the Messiah came, he lived the perfect life, and he was put to death. Not because of anything that he'd done wrong, but he did it for the purpose of paying the debt that was on our backs. That he paid, he absorbed the wrath of God that was due sin. And that we're told that he rose from the dead. And over in Ephesians 1.13, we're told that this reality is activated in our lives through belief. That he did it, he presented it, it's available to each and every one of us. Our default position is that we reject the gospel. If you think, well, I haven't done anything with it, well, you're in the, reject- the rejection category. In Ephesians 1.13, we're told that when you hear it, at a moment you believe, that you respond, that you trust, you say, yes, that was for me, I believe. And we're told at that moment that you're sealed by the Spirit. We see that, that through the Spirit, you're gifted, um, uh, you're equipped. Uh, his work begins to happen in you. If you read through Ephesians, you'll get to 4.1. And over in 4.1, it's, it's just the book previous to Philippians. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul there writes another prison epistle, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
with which you have been called. So Paul makes his case over and over and over again that if you're in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, and as a citizen of heaven, there are obligations on your life that, that how you live, there are stipulations on you. And I don't think that many of us think like this. I think a lot of people, even in the Christian world, present the gospel as like fire insurance. Like, hey, just believe, just believe. Oh, you walk the aisle when you're five years old, you're good, you're golden. Don't worry about it. There are expectations on those who receive this gift. And as a word of caution, this, this, this whole letter is presented to believers. If you haven't trusted in Christ, if you've rejected Christ and you're here because somebody's twisted your arm, that's great, wonderful, I'm glad you're here. But this isn't a call for you to change your life externally to try to get right with God. That's not at all what's happening. The Bible's case is that Jesus has paid it all for you. And to receive the gift, it's to believe. Now, once you believe, there's some sort of obligations. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of like working with this cop. He was an unusual cop. I would say it to his face. He, he's a, a very deep-thinking guy. And he'd been sort of toying with the idea of Christian. Uh, toying is probably a, a bad choice of words. It, he, he was researching Christianity at depth. And then he would go to talk to people. And then when he would talk to the people, their, ans- their, their answer to him was always, Oh, go to Romans Road. Just like, let's like, do the hopscotch through Romans to kind of lead you to Christ. Oh, let's do a Bible study on the Gospel of John just to lead you to Christ. So I met with him, and he's like, I, I, I want you to evangelize me. I'm like, okay, like, what's that mean? Like, you're leading the dance. How do I follow? Like, what's going And he's like, well, I believe that Jesus is God. Okay, that's a good step. Everything sounds great to me. I'm like, what's the hang-up? He's like, well, before I do this, I need to know, like, what are the expectations on me? Like, if I believe, what are the steps? What are things that I'm sort of obligated to? And I'm like, dude, that's profound. Like, I got to really think through this. Like, how, how do we, and I sort of laid out, I'm like, if you were to come to faith in Christ, I, I, like, the, like, the Bible talks about baptism, the Bible talks about being in community with, with the church. Um, and I kind of went through all the stuff, and he's still working on his life. But it was a very, like for me, but God, it's, this is his deal, the church. We don't dictate to him. We're sinners that, that basically have no, like, we subject ourselves to him and say, Lord, you did it all for me. Now what do I, like, how do I respond so when he says, manner of the worthy of gospel, this is going to be something that Paul is going to begin to unpack for us. We're not going to answer this question totally and completely today. But if I could leave us thinking this week, how are your actions, how do your actions, your thoughts, how you interact with other people, how you go about your life, the things that you do, is your life being lived in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And I look at this, I think that's a, that's a, that's a difficult question. Like Jesus gave his life, like God became man, lived a perfect life, and then suffered a brutal execution for me. Like, how, how do I measure up to that? I can't. 
he's going to help up. Paul's going to help us answer this question a little bit today. He then continues, he says, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, whether I get out of jail and I have the opportunity to come see you face to face or I remain absent, like if I get executed, regardless if I'm there or not, this is what you can do to sort of to live this way. He says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there's two phrases here, standing firm and striving together. The, those are kind of like key words that, that, sh- that would jump out at us. Um, so he desires that they stand firm in one spirit. Um, this, this deals with unity, not uniformity. God doesn't di- desire robots. If you look around the world, God is a creative God. When you start looking at the differences in people, you look at the differences in language. He, he's not calling for robots, but, but unity is very different. Un- unity, not uniformity. Unity is, is the idea that you understand what God has called you to do and that his body of believers would be united accomplishing that mission. We see this in the high priestly prayer of John 17. We're not going to read it, but if you were to go to John 17, verses 15 through 23, but really in verse 21, it's the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He's about to get arrested. He's going to go to his death, and he's praying. He prays for the guys that are right before him. He prays for the church that would come. And in that prayer, he prays that that the, the body of Christ would be united in their thinking because if they're unified, the world will see that there's something different and the world will know that they're of Christ. And I think that this is what Paul is, is referring to when he says, standing firm in one spirit, that we as a collective body, not just this church, but the churches at large, that in the spirit we would be united on our mission. The gospel. We'll see the gospel appear again. The gospel is forefront that Jesus died for us. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. But that we would be united in spirit and pointing people to Christ, united in spirit, that we all understand that we're all sinners saved by grace. And it's based on his work, not our own. And it's him that we're united on. Then he says, of one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. Uh, this is the word where we get athlete from they would have understood it as a pitcher for gladiators in the ring fighting against whatever. Um, it, it, it could have been used for military men fighting arm in arm in battle where you have three guys together kind of with all of their backs facing the world that there's, there's, there's this striving, fighting for in unity. Um, there, there's strength in togetherness. Uh, one of Aesop's fables, it talks about a father that had seven sons and he gave each son a stick. He tells each son, break the stick. They were all, that was easy. Then he took the sev- seven sticks, gave it to one son and said, try to break that and they couldn't do it. And, and so kind of like that there's strength in numbers. Um, Satan wants nothing more than for the church to be divided, for followers of Christ to be sort of scattered on their own. Sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus would say. Anybody who is trying to develop unity within numbers, like in a military organization, you're trying to 
to teach teamwork and the, the power of togetherness in the midst of adversity, no matter how bad it gets. As a SEAL instructor, there was nothing greater than when we could get young guys squabbling amongst each other, like especially during Hell Week. It was, we knew we had won when we could kind of like get into their heads and we could hear them turning against one another. I know I've told the story before, but there was, there was nothing better than during Hell Weeks when we, there was no intention of giving them sleep. But we told them, hey, you guys get your first round of sleep. It's been three days. You're going to get two hours in the tents. We're going to put you in there. Just sleep, enjoy. Just, just don't eat any food. That's all we ask. We'd lay them down for about five minutes till they just had time to fall asleep. Then we'd scream them out. We'd pull them out. One of the instructors would be holding a Snickers bar. Rapper, we saw Johnson eating a Snickers bar. And everybody go to the surf zone and get wet and sandy and come back here. Then we'd send him back to sleep for another three minutes just until we hear snoring. Another instructor would come out with a Butterfinger bar like rapper. Everybody out here, we saw Smith eating a Butterfinger. What are you guys going to learn? All you have to do to get sleep is to sleep. Everybody back to the surf zone. And then by about the third round of this, we could hear them like murmuring to one another. That's okay. Nobody eat any candy bars. All we need to do to sleep is not to eat candy bars. Smith, why you eat? Wait, where'd you get a bunker Butterfinger from? And then we'd hear them all squabbling in there. And we had them. But then as time elapsed, we'd realize that we'd, we'd try to do this, and they, they're like, we couldn't break them. They'd all go to the surf zone. Like it, it was beautiful. Like from an instructor, like our aim of building unity, it was a beautiful thing. Because once... We saw these, these small units of guys realize that no matter what we did to them externally, they wouldn't be broken. They wouldn't be broken. And, the, and as a follower of Christ, you need the body. This isn't a Lone Ranger game. If you're out there on your own and you're just trying to play church as, you, like, as you're trying to do it on your own, Satan's been playing this game for a long time and he's going to break you. And he wants nothing more than to, to creep into the church and cause division and fractions and fractions, frictions, and uh, fractions if you don't like math, you know, like, but uh, factions is what I was trying to say. Uh, that, that, that he's trying to create disunity, and that's why Jesus, the one thing he prayed is that there would be unity within the body, that they would be united on mission, that it's all about Jesus, it's not about us. We need to contribute to the body, we need to be participating as we worship him and serving one another, reaching out to the community, because if we're united, there's power there. And there's safety there, and there's security there. I use the word safety loosely. Like I'm not, I, I, safety in the God's use of the word, which we'll see, because he goes on, verse 28... And he says, in no way be alarmed by your opponents. Okay, so there's not necessarily safety in the sense that you might have been thinking when I said that. Safety in the sense of mission, that the church, it's purity, it's like it's on track. Because there's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficult. That's, that's just the way it works in this fallen world. He says, in no way... 
Be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but also or of salvation for you, and that too from God. So he says, don't, don't be afraid. That, that our lives, like whether you die at, like I just had a friend from high school share that like it was a 23rd anniversary yesterday of her losing her, her daughter that died at like, like days or weeks old. And it's heartbreaking to see this. And on the other hand of the spectrum, you have like a, you know, I don't know how the oldest living person is, but they all end up dying, you know? Like, so you get, like, it seems like the oldest living people are like 110, maybe more, like, but like death is death. And we get so wrapped around praying for like this life and like to be healed of stuff, but the, the reality is, is God brings healing in death. Like, it's not about this life, it's about the next life. And, and, and so, and he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Paul recognized that he faced death, like, whether I live or die, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's thinking eternally. And so as the opponents, nobody knows who these opponents are. The commentators all like speculate who were these opponents. But the, the world, those that are opposed to the church, the, their opponents, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed by them. He, um, he says, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. That's just a weird, like what is Paul talking about? Over in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about, uh, well, let's just go there. If you just turn back a couple books, I don't need a butcher some. <clears throat> so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 15 Paul writes to this church, and he says, for, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved. So, so there's a, kind of like this, as they live their lives, as they live their lives worthy of the gospel, it's this aroma to God. Um, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other, an aroma from life to life who is adequate for these things. I don't think any of us are. We rely on the Spirit of God to get us through. But he says that as you live your lives, as you proclaim the gospel to those who are being saved, it's, it's from life to life. You recognize the power of life. To those who are unsaved, the gospel is terribly offensive, foolish. And I think this is why Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Because he recognized. And I think when he says, I won't be ashamed, I think he's saying, like, I was, a, a, of, of the Jews, the greatest Jew. Like, I was, like, this is kind of, I, the way my family, my friends, my peers look on me from turning away from all that I had to follow this Messiah, this Jew, Jesus, who was executed shamefully. There, there might have been a temptation to be uh, ashamed of Christ. But Paul says, I will not be ashamed for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, going back. So he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. So to review, he says, stand firm in one spirit. Strive together for the gospel. Don't be afraid of those who oppose you. If there's one thing that Paul wants to convey. Unity of spirit, striving together for the sake of the gospel, 
and don't fear those that oppose you. And then from this, don't be, uh, don't be alarmed by your opponents. He's going to expand on this. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and near now here to, to be in me. The Christian hasn't been promised a comfortable life. I saw a quote in this pastor's group. I have no idea if it's a true quote, but it's worthy of re-quoting, even if it's wrong. <laughs> so I'm just saying take it, take it as that. Or if you can verify that this is true, let me know because it's a great quote. So the quote is from Spurgeon, apparently. Apparently Spurgeon said, there is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. <laughs> it's true. I mean, but there's going to be conflict as you live for Christ. It's just, it's, it's just the, the nature. And I think this is why Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says that we're to pray for our authorities. Like, we're to pray for them. We want their hearts to be turned for Christ. But, but, but the aim of praying is that you might lead quiet and tranquil lives. Which tells you that there's opposition to the gospel at a spiritual level. Like, there's, you just can't get out of it. And, and I'll say that we as Americans are exceptionally blessed. We talk about persecution like fearing our tax-exempt status or something like that. Like, we, we don't really have persecution like other countries where they're cutting off your heads. Like, there's real persecution out there. We don't really have it, so we, we should be grateful. And I didn't want to end here, so I'm, I kind of am easing into our next section because it kind of fits. Because we see therefore in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, because of everything that I've just said, he's going to kind of tie it around. He's going to bring verses, uh, verse 27. He's going to tie it back together. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love or comfort of lo- in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, um, you'll notice four ifs. Now, now, ifs can be tricky in the English language. We go, well, if, is there? Is this a question? It's not a question. These are first-class conditions in the Greek, which it's... it's it's sort of a question that's answered with an affirmative. Sometimes first-class conditions will be translated ifs, or I mean senses, sense. And so you could, you could read this to say, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort and love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, and since there is Affection and compassion, there are these things. There are comforting truths that supersede our temporal lives. It's not about circumstances. It's about our fixed hope in Christ. And Christ is greater than anything that we can possibly imagine. And so Paul, as he is in his jail cell, 
He's pointing their eyes to Christ and he says, don't worry about me. It's a wonderful thing that I'm suffering for the, the sake of the gospel. I know that when I die, this will all be worth it. There'll be rewards for me in heaven. I'm concerned about my citizenship in heaven. Then we come to verse two and the verb, the command, the imperative here is make my joy complete. So all of this is tied together when Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says, make my joy complete. You can make my joy complete by being united with one another of the same mind, focused on the gospel collectively that you're, you're striving together. And he's going to show us as we, as we enter into this section, he's going to show us the example of Jesus' selfless love and his servanthood. And he's going to say that's what we desire in our hearts. And so from Jesus, we're told that the church is Jesus's. It was in, I think, I always get it confused whether it was Matthew 16 or 18. But up in uh, Philippi, um, he says, I will build my church. And then in Acts 2, we see that the church was established and the Spirit of God came, filled and sealed the followers of Christ And we see that this church that we're a part of was established. And so when you, hopefully you have, if you have come to the place in your life where you've believed upon Christ and you've trusted him with your life, you're told in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that you were transferred from Adam, that's death, apart from Christ, by the Spirit into the body of Christ, that you were united with him, that you are in Christ, no longer in your sin. We're told in Ephesians 1.13 that I referenced earlier that you were sealed by the Spirit. In 1 Peter 4.10, we're told that once you became a Christian, that you were given a spiritual gift to be used for the body of Christ. Um, and this is an overwhelming thing. That if you're a Christian, you're a part of something greater than yourselves. You're a part of the church, which is Christ's church. And it's an overwhelming thought to think that he has called us sinners. We're not former sinners. We're sinners that are saved. Like, don't be mistaken. Like, we still struggle in the flesh. We have this dual nature within us. We have the Spirit of God residing within us. We have our old flesh that are roommates, and they hate one another, and we're kind of caught in the tug-of-war between these two. But we've been called to participate in the work of the gospel. We're told that we're ambassadors for Christ, that he's equipped us and put us on mission, not necessarily as individuals, but collectively as the body. And so my prayer is that we as a church will continue to grow in unity, that we would continue to grow being on mission, that you as an individual, as a part of this, you would recognize like, that you're a part of the, a, a body, that there are different parts of the body and they all are critical. And if you don't think that's critical, like just like, if you don't, like your pinky toe, for example, if I had to, like, somebody say, hey, 500 bucks, what will you give up? I think I'd give up my pinky toe. Well, no, no, way more than 500 bucks. I just want to be clear. I don't want, to, I don't want there to be, like, a, let's add a couple zeros. So somebody get the hammer and smash my pinky toe. Like, I'll recognize how much, how valuable my pinky toe was. Like, I think, oh, it's not valuable. Oh, yeah, it's pretty valuable. Like, we each have a purpose to play within the body of Christ. And as we continue through Philippines, he's going to begin to unpack that. But 
But my prayer, with Paul's prayer, that we be united in, in, in spirit, that we would strive together for the sake of the gospel, and that we wouldn't be worried about whatever persecution comes our way for standing firm for Christ. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the freedom that we have to worship you without fear. We, we really don't have fear, Lord. Uh, our, our fears truly are internal. We, we fear man. We fear what our friends will think about us. We fear what our family members will think about us. We, we, we fear all sorts of things. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us courage in our relationship with you. Where we lack faith, we ask that you would, you would grow our faith. Father, we ask that you would grow our understanding of the word of God and that we as a church would be committed to knowing about you, to giving our lives to you, to walking with you faithfully all of the days of our life. Um, Lord, help us to recognize that we are a part of something greater, that we are a part of the church. Help us to honor you. Help us to walk worthy of the gospel in our lives. We're not quite sure what that means altogether, uh, but we ask that you would show us that truth in our life this week. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.